Let me first say thank you for uh, the vacation that you provided me. You may not be aware of this, but uh, David Neely, who in a previous life was a U.S. wage and labor investigator, made me aware of this. Uh, you are under no legal obligation to give me vacation. Did you know that? Your employer under no legal obligation to give you vacation. So uh, you may not want to tell them that, but I'm telling you that as uh, my employer, that uh, you're not under no legal obligation. And because of that, I just want to say thank you. It means a lot uh, for me and my family to be able to get away and kind of do nothing. We didn't do absolutely nothing. We went to Minnesota to see uh, my daughter and her husband. And then we went to Oklahoma last week to see my parents. We had all these grand plans of things we were going to do here in Kansas City the rest of the time. But we decided, you know what, we're middle-aged and our nest is empty and we're just going to sit here. And uh, that was pretty good. And so today, for the first time in three weeks, I put on long pants. And it was, uh, it was heartbreaking for me to do that. But I do appreciate the vacation that you gave us. If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the 12 years I've been your pastor, you probably already know this, but in case you're new or have forgotten, my undergraduate work was not in ministry or theology. My undergraduate work was in broadcasting, specifically broadcast journalism. So that is what I was trained to do. And as, as somebody trained to do that, I, I think a lot about the state of, of journalism and broadcast journalism today. And it's occurred to me that the job for which I was trained no longer exists. Because, you see, I was trained um, to provide people... Um, enough information so that they could assess what was true and what was important. What's true, what imp- is important. And, and none of those things can happen really, I think, anymore. And there's two reasons for that. Just walk with me for a little bit through some uh, broadcast journalism history. First reason that's difficult is because of something called the Fairness Doctrine. Um, if you're of a certain age, you may remember that you used to have to give equal time to candidates. My dad uh, managed a radio station, and we used to have to, uh, if we spoke eight lines about one candidate in a news story, we had to speak eight lines about another candidate in a news story. You had to provide equal time because the idea was, was that you just presented the news as unbiased as possible without editorializing. You just couldn't do that. But when the Fairness Doctrine went away, everybody was free to editorialize, and that opened up a Pandora's box of people just offering their opinion so that you could listen for what you hoped was true and then go to that news source. So now what we do is we, we go to news sources that conform to our biases. So it's hard for us to assess what is true. If you don't believe that, just look at the various emails I get from you all about things going on in our culture. It's hard to figure out what's true. And the next thing, um, it's hard to figure out what's important. And the reason for that is the 24-hour news channel. Now, 24-hour news channels um, sprang up after I graduated from college, and let me let you in on a little secret. There's not 24 hours worth of news. There's, there's just not. And you know this because if you have it on at your house, and many of you have it on nonstop at your house, you hear the same thing over and over and over again. And even that gets too repetitive, so sometimes they say, well, we've got to put something else on, and they put on things that normally wouldn't be newsworthy, but they've got to fill their time. Here's where this occurred to me. About 12, 15 years ago, a person, a celebrity named Anna Nicole Smith died under suspicious circumstances. This was at the time when the Gulf War was going on, and so all of that really important stuff's going on. But I went to someone's house, and they had a 24-hour news channel on 
Gulf War is going on, and for like 30 or 40 minutes, they talk about Anna Nicole Smith and the suspicious circumstances surrounding her death. And the person asked me, what do you think? And being the man of compassion I am, I says, it doesn't matter. I don't care. That, that, I mean, that's not news. That's trivia. That's not news. But because you hear about it on the news, you think it's important. So we can no longer assess in the world in which we live what is true and what is important, not just with news things, but even in theology. In theology, you find people arguing with one another about things that aren't all the times true, and sometimes if it is true, it's not of primary importance. So how do we navigate our way around theologically being able to assess, A, whether something's true, and B, whether something's important? Well, here's how. First, to assess what is true. If it's in here, it's true. This is the arbiter of truthfulness for us. God's Word is what is true. And if it is true, it is important. Correct? If it's true, it's important. But even then, even then, you have to do a little bit of theological triage because there are some teaching in here that are true, and if they didn't exist, Christianity would still be on firm foundation. So you have to do triage. You have primary doctrines and you have secondary doctrines, even tertiary doctrines. And what you have to focus on when you get to the what is true part and what really matters part are those primary doctrines. But even in that handful of primary doctrines that are true and important, there's one teaching that rises above all of that, and it is of, of, of fundamental importance and is the primary truth. And that thing that is of fundamental importance and that is the primary truth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the reason that this passage of Scripture was selected, 1 Corinthians 15, an exposition on the implications of a resurrection Jesus, resurrected Jesus, is because this particular passage does more than any other to show us why you cannot negotiate away a resurrected Savior. And we're going to be challenged by Paul to take action in three different ways in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there are, there are almost 60 verses. We're not going to be able to cover every one of them. So what we're going to do is fly over the top real fast and see the high points. And the first call to action that we are given here is this. We are called in this passage of Scripture to examine the reality, examine the reality of the resurrection. Let's put it another way. Did it happen? Did the resurrection of Jesus Christ happen? Here's what Paul says in verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, so here's what is of first, of primary importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the throbbing heartbeat of the gospel, and it culminates with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, when I came to you, Corinthian church, here's what I decided was the thing that you needed to hear if you didn't hear anything else. You needed to hear that Christ died for your, for your sin, that He was buried, and then His confirmation that your sin had been paid for in the death of Christ... Christ was risen from the dead. That's the thing that is of primary importance. Now, that doesn't mean that other things are not important. For instance, this book itself 
talks about the importance of unity in the church, and it talks about taking care of one another and meeting one another's urgent needs, and it talks about loving one another, 1 Corinthians 13, that everybody reads, maybe inappropriately at a wedding, uh, is in here. It talks about about how much we uh, should manifest love for one another, and it goes on to talk about how our our morality should reflect the, the life of Jesus. All of those things are important, but Paul says, when I came to you, when I brought you the gospel, I didn't come to you saying you need to act right. I didn't come to you saying you need to treat one another better. I didn't say you need to meet needs. What I told you is the thing that matters, that Christ died, he was buried, and then his confirmation that his death on the cross satisfied the payment for your sin, he was uh, raised from the dead. And then he says, here's how I can prove to you, Corinthian church, that it actually happened. And he goes on from here to begin to list Uh, generally and specifically ways that they themselves could examine whether or not the resurrection actually happened. He talks generally about large groups of people who had seen the resurrection of Jesus. But then he talks about specific people who had seen the resurrection of Jesus. And when he got to the very end of that list and he said, lastly, he appeared to me. Now, all of that is extraordinarily important, but those specific names that are given, especially Paul, are important because they bear a continuing testimony to the resurrection of Christ. Here's how. Every one of those lives that we can examine on the pages of Scripture were changed fundamentally after encountering a resurrected Jesus. There's a great book called Basic Christianity by uh, a man who's gone home to be with the Lord named John R.W. Stott. And one of the chapters in a little tiny book that, he, uh, that is in, in the book is a, a kind of a proofs of the resurrection. And the last proof of the resurrection he gives is the changed lives of the disciples, of those who were followers of Jesus. And here's what he says in this book. He says, we can see the change in them, these disciples, without being asked to look. The men who figure in the pages of the Gospels are new and different men in the Acts. The death of their master left them despondent, disillusioned, and near to despair at the end of the Gospels. But in the Acts, the book of Acts, they emerge as men who hazard their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and who turn the world upside down. Now, we can agree that's true. These men who were cowards after having encountered a risen Christ turned the world upside down. But the objection is, yeah, but they all wanted to see what they wanted to see, and so they saw it. They saw a resurrected Jesus because they wanted to see a resurrected Jesus, and that's the reason their lives changed. That's true for everybody but Paul. Paul had no inclination or desire to see a resurrected Jesus. In fact, if you would make a list of things that Paul would not want to see, at the very top of that list would be a resurrected Jesus because he was active and engaged in rooting out the infection of Christianity from his precious Judaism. If he found anybody who believed in a resurrected Jesus, he reported them, he persecuted them, and even handed them over to be killed because he believed that the scourge of his precious Judaism was a resurrected Savior. And then he saw that resurrected Savior, and then the one who was the enemy of the church became its chief advocate. You cannot explain what Paul experienced from wanting expectantly to see something. He didn't want to see it at all, and his life was changed. 
And so Paul says, figure it out for yourself. I mean, don't take my word for it. Explore it. And in the world in which he lived, people could still talk to people who claimed to be eyewitness. But, but he's talking to us today from 1 Corinthians 15. And he's saying, my life was changed. And I didn't expect to see him. How do you explain it? So the first action we're to take is to examine the uh, reality of the resurrection. And then next, in his next main section, he calls, calls us to embrace the centrality of the resurrection. Embrace the centrality of the resurrection. Here's something that came to mind when I was preparing for this sermon that had never occurred to me before. And I've preached from 1 Corinthians 15, I don't know how many times, and I've preached literally hundreds of sermons just here and over 2,000 sermons altogether. It's never occurred to me before. Christianity is not based on a teaching. It's based on an event. Christianity does not find its roots like Islam does in a teaching. It finds its roots in an event. And the event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about something with me. If you were called in and said, we want you to uh, come up with a, a new religion that everybody needs to follow, and just kind of scheme it out for us, where would you start? And my guess is, for most of us, the last place we would even think to start would be a spontaneous resurrection from the dead. I mean, that's a preposterous thing. Stop, stop and think about that with me. It is preposterous to think, as modern people, that 2,000 years ago, a man was crucified brutally on the cross... And then three days later, came out of a rock tomb. It's preposterous. The last thing that you would come up with when establishing a world religion would be a resurrected Savior. And yet, Paul doesn't back away from it. He doesn't try to hide it. He pushes it to the forefront. He pushes it to the forefront, even though the world in which he lived was just as skeptical. When Paul's preaching in Athens, the moment he gets to the part about the resurrection, the Greeks go, you're nuts. That's a crazy, preposterous thing for anybody to believe, a resurrection of the dead. It was not helping him with the secular crowd to say that Christ has been raised from the dead. And yet, rather than back away from it, he pushes it to the middle. And he says, everything rides on this. Here's our weakness. If you want to dismantle us in a second, produce the bones of Jesus. And he, he talks about that beginning in verse 12. The reason he's writing this chapter in the first place is that people had begun to question whether their existence eternally was really going to be able to happen. What happened to those who died? What, what's going to happen to me when I die? Well, will I really, how can I have confidence that I'm going to live forever? So you begin to see some hints of that as he talks, but I want you to see how central the resurrection is to everything in what Paul writes beginning in verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And here we go. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, here we go again, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. These are extraordinarily wor- extraordinary words because he's, he's saying everything I'm saying to you, everything you claim to believe hinges on a resurrected Savior. It's so important, just to kind of break down what he says in that uh, little riff he did between 12 and 19, that there's no hope of eternal life if Christ is still in the tomb. Preaching is ultimately a waste of time if Christ is still in the tomb. And faith is an empty shell because we have no confirmation that our sins have been forgiven if Christ is still in the tomb. Basically, he says, you want to take us down... Show the bones of Jesus. Prove the resurrection didn't happen, and then he just backs away. It's a theological mic drop. I'm all in on this. And so I want you to stop and think about it with me. Think about all of the things that we as as Christians in the 21st century find ourselves grappling with. What's the proper perspective on the role of men and women in the home and the church? What's the, what's the proper perspective on people dealing with same-sex attraction? What's the proper perspective on, on issues of transgender identity, which will be the focus of our critical issues forum here in a few more weeks? You can find out about that on the website and in your bulletin. What's the proper perspective on staying married if I'm married right now? None of that matters if Christ is in the tomb. I mean, it's, it's just personal opinion. None of it really matters. You can do what you want to if Christ is still in the tomb. But here's the thing. If Christ has been resurrected, if today he lives then not only do all of those things matter because they're a reflection of this word that testifies about him, Christianity itself cannot be ignored. You cannot be nonchalant and noncommittal and laissez-faire about Christianity because if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, nothing matters, but if he was raised from the dead, it's the only thing. The only thing at all. And you have to embrace that. Embrace the centrality of the resurrection. So he's calling us to action in three different ways here. He's asked us to examine the reality of the resurrection. Did it really happen? And he concludes, pointing to himself, yes, it did. Then he says, you don't need to back away from it. You need to embrace the centrality of it. That needs to be your proclamation that Christ the Lord has risen from the dead. Embrace the centrality of it. But then he says there's an expectation that comes with it. And it's an expectation that sadly we only think about when we're at funerals. But 1 Corinthians 15 was not written to people who were attending a funeral. 
It's written to people who are living their everyday life. And so here it is. He says, in light of the resurrection having really happened, and in light of its central place in Christianity, expect the victory of the resurrection. He asked his readers to look forward to something because of what the resurrection makes possible. Now, I said earlier that the chapter begins with people questioning whether they would be raised from the dead after their death and whether their loved ones would be raised from the dead. And so here he begins an argument, to, uh, an explanation of why, why we can have hope that they have risen from the dead based on Christ's resurrection. And then he gets to these verses in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says you can have hope that you have an eternity because Jesus is alive. The two things work hand in hand. Because Jesus is alive, you have an eternity. Now, what kind of eternity are you going to have? Most of us in our minds conceive of an eternity playing a harp, floating on clouds, right? I mean, that's kind of how it is. We think, well, it's going to be kind of this spiritual existence, and I'll just, ooh, you know, kind of float around doing that for eternity. But what Paul is saying at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 is that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrected fleshly body he received is kind of a first fruits for us. We will have a resurrected body like he has a resurrected body. So here's what may be news for you. Your eternity will be an enfleshed existence. You're going to get a new body that's like the resurrected body of Christ. Your eternity will be an enfleshed existence. Besides being neat, what difference does that make? Well, for some of us, it makes a lot of difference. I've got some miles on the odometer now. And uh, I, I run probably more than I should for a man my age. And so recently in the past year, I have uh, an audible pronounced click when I walk down the steps. It's like I'm a human metronome. Click, 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 click in my knee. You can hear it out loud. I, I found that sometimes when I get out of the car, I get out more slowly than I used to be able to get out of the car, that um, after sleeping, I hurt, which is stupid. I mean, you know, what's wrong? Well, I slept. It's supposed to replenish. And so I'm getting to the age right now where you start thinking, you know, this body is showing decay and it's, and it's wearing down. I can start to see that it does have indeed an expiration date. But but somebody like me can look forward. There's going to be a day where I'm going to get a new body that doesn't wear down. It doesn't hurt. That's coming. 
doesn't get sick. But there's something else that matters. If I know that this body has an expiration date and that I will get a new body that doesn't, then I don't need to worry about wearing this one out for Jesus. I don't have to worry about sustaining this for eternity because I'll get a brand new body. And when persecution comes our way, and it may, you can stand in the face of persecution and have your body threatened with harm, actually harmed, or maybe even being threatened to be executed, and you can say to the person, it's okay, you can take it, I'm not going to be using it long anyway. You'll get a new body. Because Christ was bodily resurrected from the dead. That gives us hope in the world in which we live. And so Paul calls us to three actions. He calls us to figure out whether it really happened. We have to figure that out for ourselves. He calls us to really admit everything hinges on this. It hinges on the resurrection. But if we come to a point where we said, you know what? It, it, it verifiably happened and, and it is central. Then we can look forward to what it offers for us in the long run. So what do we do with it? As we wrap up, what do we do with this? Well, first, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, if we have accepted the validity of the resurrection, that it, 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 it is rooted in historical fact, and if we understand the centrality of it, then we need to make sure that we live Easter lives, that, that the, the proclamation that Christ rose from the grave needs to be central to us. We need to spend time pondering that and reflecting on that and giving the Lord praise because of that. And in light of all of that, we need to endure in faithfulness to Jesus in the bodies that we have in the expectation that we'll get brand new bodies one of these days. That's what believers in Christ need to do. But every single week at Blue Valley Baptist Church, on both campuses, skeptics walk through the door. Now, they may be quiet skeptics, or they may be acknowledged out loud skeptics. Some people are here as skeptics because they're really intrigued and they want to just try to figure this thing out. Some people are here as skeptics because uh, they've been coming to church all their life and they long ago began to kind of deny any of this was true, but they're just coming out of habit. And then some people are here as skeptics because you're held hostage by your family. If you don't come, it's going to cause a problem in the house, and so you're just going to go and endure, and then you're going to go home. So what about skeptics that are here today? Well, for some of you, this may be the end of a long journey, and what the Lord has said through his word in 1 Corinthians 15 has pushed you over the line. And you'll say, you know what? I think, I think it is true, and it is central. And in light of that, I can't be nonchalant about this. I've got to act. I've got to act on it. So if that's you here today, in just a moment, our elders are going to be here at the front, and you're going to get the opportunity to come to these men and say, you know what? I, I accept that Christ rose from the dead, that it's central to this faith, and that I need to surrender my life to him as my Savior and Lord because there's no other hope in the world but Jesus. 
Some of you, though, maybe have not been pushed across the line. Maybe many of you have ignored most of what I've said, but in the back of your mind, some things are rolling around. That, that thing that's rolling around is the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I would just encourage you to continue to explore that. Continue to, continue to assess on the weight of scriptures and on the weight of what we can verify in the history of Christianity, whether or not this really happened. And if it did, then Jesus will do the rest, and we'll see you down front one of these days. But right now, none of us can ignore what we've heard. We've got to do something with it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads bowed and eyes closed.